I go and explain to the sergeant what's going on. And he's like, are you drunk? Oh, good. I look at him. I said, yeah. I said, <laughs> but I can, I can still see. And I said, oh, by the way, you should bring a couple extra guys with you. I walk in, followed by a sergeant and three cops. Bartender I had known. And he's like, what's going on? I just, you know, put my fingers across my lips. Don't say anything. By this time, it's three deep at the bar. And I walk up behind Richard Friedlander, and I, I go like this. Put my, point my finger at him. And the sergeant walks up to him and says, are you Richard Friedlander? He said, yes, I am. And the sergeant says, well, you're under arrest. And guess what happened next? What's up, everybody? We are back. We are back with another episode of Police Off the Cuff. My name is Mark DeMeo, my co-host here, Bill Cannon. What's up, Bill? How are you? Uh, Doing good, man. I'm always looking forward to every Monday where we do this show. I know. Doesn't it seem to go quick now? It sure does. Within a blink of an eye. I got got people contacting me all the time when I come on the show, too. That's great. And let me tell you something. You're doing a great, great job with the guests. Um, that seems to have fallen into your lap. I'm out there doing the hustling, the promoting mostly. Uh, that's what I do on my end. But I think it's really coming together, and I'm very, very happy about this. And I'm so happy about today's episode because um, in my vision, you know, we I wanted to start out and bring in the best of the best law enforcement officers that we had here. In New York City, that's where we started, but I wanted to expand it to other states. And I also wanted to broaden out the show to everything that has to do with law enforcement. And that's why I'm really, really pleased to have our first guest to here today. I mean, our, not our first guest, but our guest here today. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you uh, introduce him, Bill, because I know you're a big fan. So... All right. Today we have a, uh, he's not a law enforcement officer, but he was a Manhattan DA for 24 years. He came on the Manhattan DA's office in 1982 when New York City was rocking, especially Manhattan. And he did 24 years in the DA's office, and now he's actually a defense attorney. So we, we don't have to hate him because he uh-huh. did have a prior life as a, as a prosecutor. But uh-huh. uh, He flipped. Yeah, he flipped. He, he flipped, flipped the man. switch. Everybody's <laughs> got to try and keep somebody out of jail. What's up, Dan? How are you? I'm Doing well, gentlemen. How are you? And Bib in the house. We man. may even need an attorney one day. What do you think about the palatial <laughs> estates here? Yeah, it's a beautiful place. <laughs> I heard you he's, commenting. You like it? Uh, yeah, he's got the pool out back. I'm, I'm looking. I'm thinking uh, this may be my vacation. In the spot summer, this we're going to do the, the podcast poolside. You know, I just I, I just have to do a short commercial. These premises are protected by Smith and Wesson, Glock, and Tommy Kennedy. You know, the toughest cop in New York City. He patrols two nights a week, and Ralph Friedman sells his books in my driveway on the weekend. So, in case you're trying to think of doing something here, <laughs> don't don't. <laughs> well, I can bring a Remington. Into that <laughs> yeah, okay. equation. That's good. Hey, Dan, let me ask you. Uh, you were, so you were a district attorney. Uh, where did you grow up? Uh, well, I was born in Chicago, uh, involuntarily moved to uh, New Jersey when I was just about nine. Spent uh, the rest of my life in Jersey, except for college. Uh, and then when I moved to the DA's office, when I went to the DA's office, obviously moved into the city for a while. So you can do that. You can be... Um you can go to law school, graduate. You went to which which school did you go to? Well, they call it the Harvard of New Jersey. It's uh, <laughs> Seton Hall University Law School. Uh, yeah, I've, right. I've actually lectured at, at Harvard, and I've, I've opened with that. Uh-huh. With that. I said, joke. I didn't go to the, the Harvard. I went to the Seton Hall, Seton Hall, the Harvard of New Jersey. Did the Harvard people get that joke? Did they laugh or what? They laughed. Oh, that's, that's good. <laughs> Seton Hall's Catholic, right? It is. So you're a good Catholic boy? Spent every year of my educational career in Catholic schools, except for two years of high school. Wow. You got a nickel for an old altar boy father? (laughs) Altar boy myself. (laughs) I always loved doing the weddings and the funerals because that got you paid. That's right. You get tipped. Yeah. I went to Catholic school my whole life too. My so mother you, tried to make me become an altar boy, and I pretended I was retarded, that I couldn't learn uh-huh. when to ring the bells and shit, because I didn't want to do it. I did it. I liked you it. Know, we had fun. We had I'm, too much fun. I actually got kicked off. For, for I love the bells. <laughs> I was I such a good it, Catholic boy, I would volunteer to do a couple of masses every Holy Sunday. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but then things change. You met some of those pedophile priests. <laughs> I There's hope a not. scene in a movie. I'm trying to think of what it is where the, the altar boy, he's putting the Eucharist, uh, or the priest is putting the Eucharist in the like the girl's mouth, and he had a crush on that girl. Do you remember what movie that was? 
pretty sexy. It's, no idea. Yeah, I remember no. that. I remember that serving communion with the priest, and like there was a couple of cute chicks, and you know, you're standing there. You look good because you got to do your hair on Sundays, you know? You put on that robe. I have a question. Any of us three go to Mass anymore? Oh my God, I'm there's some ba- bad Catholics here. I got actually, I got baptized Greek Orthodox. I, yeah. I, I, I don't call it a bad Catholic, I call it a lapsed yeah, Catholic. Me too, me too. I think, um, yeah, man, I don't know, it's tough to keep me in there, man. I had a hard time with it when I was a child, it's just sitting still. That's why I had to be, I didn't mind being on the um, the altar boys, because it gave you something to do. Yeah. And then I got married to a Greek girl. And uh, I got baptized Greek, and we started going to Greek church. And let me tell you something. Catholic church, you can come in 15 minutes late. You can leave right after communion. So the whole thing really, and you don't have to really get dressed up. So the whole thing really lasts like half hour. You go to Greek church, they don't start until you get there. (laughs) They wait for you. And as soon as you walk in, that's when they start. And then it's like a three-hour thing. You finish like a half a pack of cigarettes. If you go out every 10 minutes to have a cigarette, and you come, it's like a three-hour thing. You guys throwing the plates into the fireplace, no, too? No, there's no <laughs> plates at the church. Come on, man. That's the only thing I know of Greek culture, so you know, give me a break. All right? So uh, <laughs> so you grew up in New Jersey. I did. And you went to Seton Hall. You're a tall dude, man. You got me beat. This is like the first time I ever had somebody You play high in. school basketball then? No, I was a swimmer. Swimmer? Yeah, man. Well, that's cool, though. You, you, you get, Must have you, some kick. You get to the wall quicker. <laughs> 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 yeah, but isn't that Phelps? It was it Michael Phelps? He's pretty tall too. Yeah, he's, he's like six seven. What are you six seven? Six 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 six. I could I could never swim in college, man. There were just too many more fun things to do than practice. <laughs> you need in a pool three hours a day. Oh, uh, eighty no, pounds lighter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I could yeah. two handed. Wow. Uh, two handed. Now I now oh, I man. doubt That's I great. doubt I could even touch the rim. Isn't that funny? I could when I was in high school I could dunk. I'm six one. Oh, I can dunk, man. Now, six I'd four. Be lucky I can't if I could touch the backboard. <laughs> My coach used to say to me, "You run like you hate the earth." <laughs> well, I can I can still touch the backboard standing still, but my jump is maybe about three inches. Three inch vertical yeah, jump. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I could get above the rim, but uh, then I, I couldn't grip the ball. Yeah. So the ball, if I, if the ball came out and happened to fall in the basket, then it looked you like I dunked. You counted that it. as a dunk. It looked like I dunked. It. <laughs> and the worst was in the beginning of the games. You know when you do the layup drills. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the girls would come, they're, they're in the stands, they're watching, and all the other kids were dunking. And here I am, one of the centers on the team, and I would just do a layup. <laughs> so fucking embarrassing. <laughs> so, uh, actually, the DA's office had an extremely competitive league. That's right. Extreme, like, hyper-competitive. Um, like John Irwin played blood. for Georgetown, right? I wouldn't yes. be surprised if a lot of those lawyers <laughs> played on the basketball teams in their colleges. They did. John Let's Irwin went to Ge- oh, yeah, played okay. at Georgetown. He was the last I mean, white guy to play at Georgetown. See, if I, I didn't have this <laughs> this cheesy beard I have now, you could see a uh, a nice scar where I got seven stitches for after one of those games. So wow, there was it was not unknown that there was blood on the floor during one of those games. Where did you guys play? Irving Place, right? Washington Irving High School. That's right, because I, I used to tend bar at Pete's. Go right around the corner <laughs> to Pete's after after every game. That's right. Yeah, that's a good thing, man. That's a, one of the cool things about living in the city. Um, when you get to be like either in the DA squad, you get a special play to, uh, place to play your ba- uh, basketball games. If you're an actor in the, or a comedian, you go, get in the, the softball league in Central Park. You can play your softball games in Central Park. It's one of the cool things about cool. being in New yeah. York City. You always knew who the good guys were because you could beat the shit out of each other on a basketball court. And 10 minutes after the game's over, you could be laughing and having a beer together. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's, there's, there's, there's one guy who would, who would never join us at Pete, and that's our present governor. Oh, God. But he only did like a year oh, and a really? half as a DA, though, right? He did two and a half years. And a half years. He was supposed to do three. He cut out at two and a half. Supposedly, he had uh, the boss's permission. The boss, of course, being Robert Morgenthau, to go run his go run Daddy's campaign. When you say he was supposed to do three, that means when you you're trying to tell us that when you sign on to be uh, to get the job in the DA's office, you're pretty much signing on to do three years. Is that you're, in the contract or no? There's no contract. There's no written contract. But you, when you're offered the job, you're asked to make a three-year commitment. And although you know nobody's going to put a gun to your head and say you you know you got to stay for two years, three hundred sixty-six days. It's expected that you are going to fulfill your commitment. Um, and people who don't usually don't get recommenda- the recommendations that no- people would normally get after fulfilling their commitment 
um, from from other higher so ups. So it's in almost the like the police department resigning with the permission of the police commissioner. <laughs> Or not, right? <laughs> there were there were very few people that I know that didn't fulfill their commitment. Um, a couple, Andy being one of them, I think, at least he says he had his permission, had, had Mr. Morgenthau's permission to leave before three. But you were expected to fulfill your commitment. Right. And of course, I had worked for a federal judge for a semester in law school. And he and Mr. Morgenthau were friends. And when I took the job, he looked at me and said, you know, I know people like you. You are not going to do three years. You're going to do a career. And I said, you know, you know, Judge, I, I think you're wrong. I said, I think I'm, you know, going to do three or four years. Then, you know, go out and make some money. And about twenty some odd years later, I saw him <laughs> at, an, at a Seton Hall law, law School event, and and he rec- actually recognized me. And he said, so you're working for some big law firm. And I said, I laughed. I, was, I laughed and I said, no, Judge, you, you made an accurate prediction back then. I'm on my 20th year. He goes, yeah, see, I told you so. But what could, was it about you? What was it about you? What, what did you have that? Is it a, the passion for, uh, to, put, to put people away? Is that what he saw in you? You know, I, what, Morgenthau saw in me? Well, who, who said that to you? That about oh, that was Judge, Judge Curtis Meaner. Okay, that you were going to make a career out of it. But he meant you made a prosecution, a well, prosecutor, he, a career I, out of it. He right? meant that, that I was going to have so much fun doing what I did that I wasn't going to leave. Uh-huh. And he was right. It, on just about every level, it was a little job that couldn't be beat. Uh-huh. Um, I had friends of mine that were at big law firms making five, five, six, seven, eight times as much money as I made when I started, um, who were absolutely miserable. Uh And that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something that was going to have an impact. And I wanted to do something that was going to be, that I was going to enjoy, at least enjoy for a little bit of it. It's sort of an exciting job, right? You get to do not just the the law part, but the investigation part of it gets pretty interesting too. Well, once you you know you start out in the in the DA's office, you're in uh, criminal court, and it you know there are literally even today there are probably between seventy and eighty thousand filings and misdemeanor filings in criminal court. When I started. It was between 120,000 and 140,000 filings in, in criminal court in, just in Manhattan alone. So you're thrown into the fire in Manhattan criminal court. You know, your caseload can get up to 120 or 130 cases at a time. Wow. And, you know, what you don't expect when you start at that job. Is I had a that- caseload like that. <laughs> that was in the detective squad. Open cases. That's Open. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you, did, you just... You didn't expect to be so inundated where, you know, all you could do was process things. There so why were you miserable? And, the, and the, you were, it sounds like you're working a lot of hours, almost as many hours as the people that are working in these big law firms. Why weren't you miserable? Because I thought I was having a difference. Um, I the, guess the, the best way to, to explain it is that going into a job like that, you're dealing, you're dealing a lot with the public, and you really do feel like, even though, even though in your first year and a half, two years, you're just a, you know, a clerk processing misdemeanor cases, you're learning a lot, um, and you're getting ready to move up um, where you do, and you can, and often do make a difference. Um, even low-level felonies, um, you know, you're dealing with the public constantly, you're dealing with civilians, you're dealing with obviously a lot of police witnesses. Um, and what I didn't want to do was sit in some back office and process paper. Although right. for the for the first 18 months in the DA's office, that's what I felt like I was doing with processing paper mm-hmm. as opposed to prosecuting criminals. But, uh, you know, once you get up into Supreme Court, once you get promoted uh, and you work your way up, becomes and was and probably if I was still there would still be a, re- a rewarding job. You know, one of the things that I, I remember talking to uh, ADAs about all the time is how valuable the uh, court experience is and how not only is it valuable, it's valuable because once you do, you get uh, get that under your belt and you're not nervous to be in front of a court, in front of a jury, then you can use that experience and and cash in on it afterwards. And that's what a lot of people do, right? Well, I, 
Yeah, a lot of people do cash in on it. I wish I was cashing in on it a little bit more. <laughs> I wish I had my clients, you know, uh, instead of saying, listen, okay, you're going to charge me X, I can only pay half up front, and then I, I never see the other half. Uh, but the the experience was unbelievable. You're, if you want, you can try as many cases as you want. You can take as many pleas as you want. You were taught to exercise judgment. You were taught to eva- how to evaluate a case, what value to put on a case. You were taught critical skills about evaluating witness testimony and evaluating police testimony as well. Um, and I was lucky enough to have moved up fairly quickly from criminal court to felony prosecutions and after just short of four years, homicide prosecutions, that I got a lot of experience very quickly. I tried my first murder case just over four years in the office. Wow, that's fast. Um, it's, it's very fast. Now, if you're in the Manhattan DA's office, you'll be lucky to try, lucky to try a murder case after 10 years. But there wow. were also 600 murders in Manhattan back then <laughs> per year, right? Well, when you're on homicide squad, <laughs> I mean, when you're on homicide call right. um, and you're, you're supposed to be on homicide call for 24 hours, uh, the 24 hours was usually more like between 48 and 72 um, because bodies were hitting the street like flies yep. uh, or, you know, and arrests were being made. And, you know, back when I, when I started on homicide call, you the, the DA's office often wasn't involved in an investigation prior to an arrest. Um, so basically, we were really reactive. We reacted to a situation instead of being involved in it. Um, as I grew up on homicide call and got more experience, uh, I tried to get involved in investigations early. So you'd go out to the scene? We would go to, we would go to precincts, we'd go to scenes, um, on a number of big cases that I had that had happened right away that arrests were made right away. I was on the scene within hours. Um, there's one case from January of 1993, a bank robbery on in the 24th precinct on the Upper West Side. Um, I was actually listening to a radio broadcast coming from the scene. The bank robbery happened at 10. At 10.20, there, were, there was a blazing shootout on uh, 93rd and Upper Riverside. And within 15 minutes of that shootout, I was listening to a report of the bank robbery uh, on the radio in my office. You know, Dan, just to stop you for one second, that was my precinct and I happened to be on vacation. I was like, I missed all the action. Yeah, it, was your, it was your lucky day, yeah, I'm guess, telling you. I guess. Uh, I mean, I was I was actually in the precinct uh, by noon on that case. And and um, George Pagan, who was a uh, great, yeah, great guy, great boss. Lieutenant, yeah. Um, he was standing at the door to his office with half a dozen white shirts um, encircling him. I think he's just retired now, didn't he? No, he retired a while ago. He's, a while I heard he's, a, he's, he's up there in age. Okay. Yeah. Um, George looks, I, I knew George, and he looks at me, and he looks at his office, and he politely tries to excuse himself from the, the encircling horde of bosses, <laughs> and I follow him into his office, shut the door, and with, you know, he's talking to me all of two seconds, the door opens and all the white shirts come oh, piling God. in. That's just what you want, right? And not, not oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, every, yeah that's yeah. exactly what I want. Yeah. You know, white, white shirts taking notes. For our for our audience, white shirts are uh, anyone above the rank of captain back then. Now, actually, even lieutenants Lute- wear white yeah, shirts. Lieutenants but, are wearing white shirts. But back then, it was you know he's referring to all the deputy inspectors, inspectors, chiefs, who really are looking at the political ramifications of a case like this and not the actual investigation because they have no clue about the investigation. Uh, so where was I going with that? Well, you were talking. You were well, in the office with George Pagan, and all the, the white shirts came busting. All the white shirts come busting in, and I, I just, I begged each of them. I said, "Don't take out a pen and don't take out a piece of paper, because I just need to talk to George for ten minutes to find out what's going on." Um, and you know that was a wild case that started with a bank robbery on ninety uh, third and broad ninety first and Broadway, right. and ended with a wild shootout. It was chase. 93rd. It was a chase. It was a chase up on. Uh, over to over to uh, West End, up West End, down 93rd to Upper Riverside, where there was a final shootout. 
And don't take this the wrong way, but amazingly, I believe, I, I don't remember the number, but I think there were 16 shots fired by police at the final shootout, <laughs> and they hit the guy 12 times. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> no, that that's... It, it, you know, I, I can't believe how many other police shootings I responded to. Were, <laughs> I thought you were, were going to say 30 rounds. 16. Were 30 rounds but, were fired right. and one, you know, guy got hit once. <laughs> the, bad, say, the bad guy. They were 0 for 16. They, they were pretty damn close to him, the, though, too, right? Oh, they were, they were, they were very close. <laughs> they were within four or five feet of him. <laughs> one foot on top of him. I can even hit the target, and I'm not a great shot. From four or five feet, I'm yeah, deadly. I'm, <laughs> I'm not a good shot either, believe me. <laughs> so, um... What was the outcome of this case? Well, two guys, uh, two guys, one guy got away. Well, you went up there early, so that... Yeah, we were there, I was there within an hour, within two and a half that hours of you. the shooting. That helps it, you with the case, It certainly right? helps, because you, you, you know what's going on. There's two guys already in custody that were arrested behind the bank in an alleyway as a result of some civilian 911 calls. The uh, cops get into the alleyway and they arrest two of the guys. One guy gets away. We end up getting him for another bank robbery later. Um, but the, Where were these guys from? The Bronx. Oh, Bronx guys. And they had, uh, there were, the Joint Bank Robbery Task Force had these guys doing, up to that point, 10. I think that was their, this was their 11th. But these guys were loaded for bear too, right? They were not uh, considering no, these, getting caught. These were not note-passing guys. Right, these right. were thoroughly bad guys. Um, they this were is always more, this armed. Is not, like you said, not one person walking in with a note. No. This is like the plan. They made a plan. There's like three or four people this, involved in this, right? In each, in each of the 11, there were at least two guys involved, and it depended on the bank and the size of the bank. The bank on 91st and Broadway is fairly sizable, took up about two-thirds of the block, and there were entrances on both, you know, the north and south sides of the bank, um, and they had two guys dressed in construction regalia with hard hats um, and reflective vests, and then they had two guys um, dressed as, they had all blue on, with security hats, with security baseball hats with a patch on it said security. And the two guys in the construction gear jumped the bandit barrier. The bandit barrier didn't go all up to the ceiling. There was about, a, about two feet below the ceiling that the bandit barrier ended. They actually vaulted themselves over the bandit barrier. Wow. Behind the, the, it's the bandit barrier. pretty athletic, isn't it? <laughs> and you couldn't they, do that. I couldn't do that. Me neither. They, you with the hip, me with my knees, forget it. Oh, no. We caught in two seconds. No, no, I'd, I'd be dead in a, in a heartbeat. Um, I'd, I'd have fallen off the top of the bandit barrier and broken my neck. Uh, but, yeah, they and they, they basically took over the bank. There were the two guys with security guards. One was at the north door, one was at the south door. It's like a movie. There was probably 15 to 20 people in the bank at the time. All of them were armed. All of them had nines. Uh, nine millimeters. Uh, the both of the security guys, one of the security guys and one of the um, one of the the bandit barrier jumpers, were caught in the alleyway. Um, the other security guy got away, and uh, the other bandit barrier jumper was the guy who got, ended up getting killed on Ninety Third and Upper Riverside. So he was running in the street. Running in the street. Where was the car? Firing in the street. Yeah, wait, didn't a, didn't Stacks a, uh, fell asleep like in the getaway a car again. Did pull up to the bank and exchange gunfire in front of the bank? No, it wasn't a scooter. I'll tell you the story about the scooter girl <laughs> later. All right. Um, the, there was a uh, radio car uh, between 90th and 91st coming up Broadway, and a someone who was standing outside the bank, actually about to enter the bank, ran up to the radio car and told the two cops that there was a robbery going on and they immediately stopped the, the radio car short of the intersection. They didn't say I'm on meal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, bet, I bet they wish they did based on what happened. Um, but uh, they, they, get out of, they got out of the car and they approached the south door and they could see they, they couldn't actually see the guy standing inside the door but they could see two guys behind the uh, behind the the bandit barrier collecting money and they could see people laying on the floor and maybe 10 seconds after they arrived at the south door, the guy who was guarding the south door bursts out of the door 
and exchanges gunfire probably within six to seven feet with one of the cops. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I've heard about this story. And before. they both missed. Um, he goes on the run. They then put over the chase, and the chase is now on. Everybody is going. Nobody's people. Nobody's responding to the bank at this point <laughs> because they're all responding to the shooting. Right. And this guy runs uh, west and then north on West End and occasionally just turning and firing at the police as he goes. He then turns west on 93rd Street and transit guys join in the chase. Um, two O guys are coming up Riverside Drive from the 20th Precinct. There are probably every every sector car in the 2-4 was involved in, in this. And as they get closer to... to uh, to Riverside, Upper Riverside, cops start bailing out of the cars to try and get a stop on them, to, to try and get the guy to stop. Um, and he's he just turns and fires. And crazily enough, there was a transit guy on a building line who decides that he's got to make it into the street. And as the transit guy goes from the building line to the street, the guy turns around, shoots, and hits the hits. This is from three quarters of the block wow. down. Hits the transit guy square in the chest, in the vest. The wow. transit guy goes down. He runs into the street. His sergeant was already in the street, and they then begin the chase. And the 20th Precinct guys were coming up Riverside Drive, so they know that they're going to be able to put a stop on this guy. Um, he's not going to be able to get by them, or if he does, it's going to, he's going to go into the park. Um, and he, he ends up taking a hostage, um, and begins to negotiate, attempts to negotiate the <laughs> surrender. Um, at one point, he releases the hostage. She begins to fall, and all hell breaks loose. Um, he's again shot multiple times and goes down. And unfortunately, one of the rounds, one of the police rounds, went through and through him and into the hostage, and unfortunately, she passed away. Well, I didn't know that's what happened. And uh, what's his name? Patty White got struck in the foot, right? Patty White, got shot. Yeah. Patty White got shot in the foot. As I said, Ron Bauman was a transit guy who got shot in the chest. Um, all told— Did he get off the job after that? The no. guy from transit that got shot in the chest? No. He no. stayed on the job? Because I mean, that's a scary thing, getting shot. No, Even he, though you live, it's still a scary thing to live with. And right? the, the pictures of the bruise to his chest— it probably was six to eight inches around. Wow. Um, you know, crime scene was at the hospital taking pictures of him, vouchering his vest around. What I always found unbelievable was the guy's gun. Um, when I get the ballistics back, and the ballistics guy whose name escapes me was a friend of mine, he tells me, he, he goes, Dan, that was an unbelievable shot. I go, Why? He goes, the barrel was drilled. There's no rifling in that gun. In the perp's gun. In the perp's gun. Yeah. There was no rifling. He hit a cop square in the chest from probably, that's got to be at least 150 to 200 yards. Wow. Turning and firing and hit him square in the chest with a gun that had no rifling. That was an unbelievable shot. It's incredible. And thank God Ron Bauman, uh, he was, you know, he was fine. Yeah, you know, it yeah. took him took him a while. The first time I the first time I talked to him a couple of weeks later, he was still having trouble um, breathing. He was still on limited. He was on limited duty. He was back, but on limited duty, he was still having trouble breathing from the bruise. Well, that could break your sternum. I mean, right? It could. It hit him upper lower lower left chest, but it, I, that was just an unbelievable wow. unbelievable shot. But uh, two, of those, two of those guys, the two guys got caught, went to trial, three-month trial, convicted after trial. Um, Why does it take three months for a trial like this? When I know there's a lot of moving pieces, but... 84 witnesses. Well, was the FBI involved in this Yes, too? yes. Well, JTTF was well, involved. So all guys, yeah. And who, JTTF processed the inside of the bank and, and crime scene did all the outside work. Um, and of course, the two guys who ran into the alley behind the bank, they ditched all their clothes. And so there was there was a cr actual crime scene and one guy had climbed over a fence and there was razor wire on top and had cut himself. So they're taking blood from it. They're processing crime scenes everywhere. Right. Um, and the 
the purple who was killed ended up firing, I think, all 15 rounds that he had. And wow. it was... Not with Cuomo banning those uh, <laughs> those no. large magazines. And my, as a matter of fact, that's a funny story because New Jersey, I, I'm, I'm in Jer- back in Jersey and New Jersey just banned my magazines and I had to send them to a friend in North, I had to send all my 15 round mags to a friend in North Carolina. I sent them with a, uh, I sent them with a note. Please babysit these. Yeah, until the laws change. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I had three 15 round mags for, the, for my Glock and I went out and bought five, 10 rounds. So I, I increased my capacity by five rounds. <laughs> hey, you know, you mentioned something earlier about the, uh, when you were in law school, right? And the basketball games that you used to play in. No, no, it was when you graduated DA's, DA's office. office. Yeah, DA's office. The basketball games that you used to play. And it gave me, um, I had a vision of uh, a few good men. Remember that scene? Because you mentioned them having a beer afterwards. And there's a, the scene there with Tom Cruise. And then the, uh, he's playing, he's in the middle of the game. And then they go after, uh, who was the, the other guy? That, Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon, right. And they go back, they go back and they're having a beer after the softball game. And then they have those words. And you suck at the softball, remember? And he walks out. <laughs> so they go from being on the field exactly the way you said it. It's having a beer. But you're saying uh, Pomo didn't show up for those beers. No, never. Why? He sucked at basketball? He didn't want to associate with you guys? He didn't want to buy a round. <laughs> that, that, that may be true. No, actually, actually uh, Andy was a pretty, pretty good ball player. Um, but he... He was in appeals, and you know the the appellate guys were the eggheads. Those are the real smart guys. And uh, why um, are they the smarter guys? Yeah, because they they want to do the research. I didn't I didn't want to do research. I wanted no. to try cases. Uh-huh. That's why I went to the DA's office. Um, Andy, I think, just went to the DA's office to get you know to put it on a resume because he knew he was always going to work for his father. And didn't and John Kennedy a, Jr. work in the DA's office too? Bobby Kennedy Jr. worked in the DA's office. John oh, no, well, John Kennedy, Kennedy never, he never passed the... No, well, he did. No, he worked no, in the DA's I, office, too. I started with Bobby yeah. Kennedy Jr. and worked Not in, Bobby, I'm talking about no, John no, Kennedy. He, they both did. That was his he, cousin. They both... I worked initially from 82 to 96 in Trabio 50, and Bobby started with me in 82. He worked in Trabio 50, and then John started... I can't remember exactly the year. It was 90, 91, 92, and uh, he was in Trabio 50 as well with me. For, for a couple of years, John's very nice guy, good guy. Bobby was a uh, Bobby was a very nice guy, good guy. Hmm. It's an interesting place to work, man. Especially with um, it has such a, it's so respected in the nation. You got so many TV shows based on it. You know, um, so you got to feel like a superstar. But it is a contract in some ways, though, right? I mean, you weren't getting in the Manhattan DA's office. Uh, I didn't know anyone. You didn't, maybe, but a lot of people, I bet, do. Yeah, but you don't forget, he went to uh, the Seton Harvard of New Jersey. The Catholic Harvard of New Jersey. No, but I'm just saying, I'm not saying you were hooked, but I'm sure plenty of people well, are hooked were, that go to the Manhattan office. My year, let's see, Irv Gottbaum Jr., whose father was uh, president of the teachers' union, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> um, there were a couple of other contracts besides Bobby in my ear. Right. I don't remember them off the top of my head. I remember we used to get these young DAs, they, they'd grab uh, the complainant and you'd be like, oh, why are you carrying a knife? <laughs> we uh-huh. Like, hey, Susie, the guy lives in Spanish Harlem. Uh-huh. If you don't carry at least a knife, you are dead, right? Like she was like, she was baffled like why he was carrying a what, knife. Let me you ask know? you a question. What made you want to go into um, the DA squad? The DA's office was something that was not really not on my radar. Um, you know, I was. And then what happened? Well, in the middle of law school, I met a, I met a girl by the name of Diane Sammons, and Wait, I had the, just the name sounds hot. She was she was hot, and uh, I wanted to get close to her, and we ended up becoming friends. And of course, to my distress, I learned swiftly that she was ma- happily married. But uh, we, st- we still got to be friends. And she went to the Manhattan DA's office. She graduated in 81 and went to the DA's office. And we kept in touch. She told me how much fun she was having um, and that I should consider going there. And it was a party sometime in November of 81. What were you doing before this? What were you working as a lawyer before that? Oh, I... I went to I went to the DA's office right out of law school. Okay, so she's so, giving you this advice right before you graduate. Right, um, this is November, December of 1981 at a party in Maplewood, New Jersey, 
and she is regaling me and others with the story of a jury trial that she had just finished. So these are DA war stories, right? <laughs> and everybody in the you know everybody in the room is either out from 1981, class of 1981, or class of 1982. The people in the class of 1981, they're all looking at her, you know, with crossed eyes, thinking, "How are you getting a jury trial? You've been out of law school since May." Mm-hmm. <laughs> you you just tried a jury trial? How is that possible? And of course, you know, all of these guys got milk toast skin because you know all, they've all been working at big firms and they've mm-hmm. never seen they they won't see the inside of a courtroom for another ten years. And Diane just had a jury trial, wow. and she's talking how about how exciting it was and how great it was. And I thought, man, I got to do this. Uh-huh. Check this out. And it wouldn't be bad to follow her around, you know. <laughs> But it was, um, you know, that that story. No, I, it couldn't have been. It couldn't have been that late because I got the offer. I got the offer for the job. It's probably October, and I hadn't even sent them a resume. And I, I think the next day, I sent a resume, and I got an interview. Did you finish at the top of your class in? Um the Harvard of New Jersey, Seton <laughs> Hall, Catholic school. Uh, top ten percent. I wouldn't say it was the top of my class. I last year I let my grades slide a little bit because I was tending bar. You know, keep in mind while I was at the Harvard of New Jersey, I had to work. You still had to pay for it though. I had to pay yeah. for it. You yeah. know, and, and loans only paid for so much. My parents had already paid for college. Um, so I, I got out of college almost debt free and you know, I needed to work. I was Where did you go undergrad? Uh, I got. I have a bachelor's and a master's from Villanova. Wow, you went to some good schools. Well, as we used to refer you went to, to it the as, Harvard of Pennsylvania too. Right? <laughs> well, as we used to refer to it as Villanowhere <laughs> or or Vanilla Nova. Dan, you were a heavy duty Catholic man. Two Catholic schools, Villanova, and then wait, I went to grammar school, uh, Essex shit. Catholic High School in Newark for two years, and then I transferred to Verona High School for. I uh, grew up in Verona for two years. So yeah, every year of my educational was in was in Catholic school. You had some indoctrination there, man. <laughs> I rebelled against that quite a bit at Villanova. Yeah. Long hair, big beard. How long yeah. did it take for you to get your first jury trial? I think I got my first jury trial. And it probably wasn't until February. No, January, February. So it was a fast track to, for yeah. you as well. Yeah, well, you know, if you wanted to, you know, keep in mind that when you're in criminal court, you're processing hundreds and hundreds of cases. And very difficult to get a jury trial in criminal court. You know, 1% of misdemeanors prosecuted in, probably less than 1% of misdemeanors prosecuted back in 82 and 83 went to a jury trial. And if you got one, you were lucky. Mm-hmm. And if you if you got one, you know, you there was always somebody there sitting in the, you know, a boss sitting in the audience, giving you advice when the, when the jury's out of the room. But and I, and I remember my first jury trial. It was, it was a jostling pickpocket. And after I picked a jury, I, I, there's no way I could lose this case mm-hmm. because I got six women on a jury, all of whom had been pickpocketed. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. How did this happen? How did the defense attorney leave these six women on a jury? And th- my, my case was, was two cops um, and a complainant who had absolutely no idea what was happening at the time. And the jury acquitted in like two hours. Holy shit. And I walked out of the room stunned. And the defense attorney, who I, I like to this day, a guy from legal aid by the name of Tom Klein, good guy, great lawyer. To this day, I don't know what happened. Because, you know, as a prosecutor, the, the office had a blanket policy is you, you do not talk to jurors, either acquitting or convicting. Of course, I ignored that oftentimes as <laughs> I went on in my career. But uh, I walked out of that courtroom absolutely stunned. And I got back to the office and, you know, I sit down with uh, my deputy bureau chief who, who tells me what I did and didn't do wrong. And then I just looked at him and I said, Rick, what happened in there? He goes, man, it's just Manhattan jurors. I said, yeah, but all those women have been victims of pickpockets. He goes, yeah, but all those, all those women jurors were teachers and social workers. Oh, God. <laughs> Mm. So, you know, you got to look who you're picking. And I was like, yeah, but as soon as they came, as soon as they thought I, they came out with the word, I, I've been a victim of a pickpocket. Oh, I got this in the bag. 
Yeah, they no. didn't want and to put someone in jail then, right? In hindsight, if you and would, the guy and the guy the guy had 30, 30 prior arrests for pickpockets, thirty all in, all in the subway. Wow. That MO was a strong thing. It's funny thing, because if you would have got six guys on that jury, none of them got pickpocketed. What are they thinking about? Uh, if, what would happen if my mother got pickpocketed? Exactly. My, exactly. my sister got pickpocketed. Exactly. Well, I, I learned a, 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 uh, a jury selection lesson uh, during that trial. Just because people have had the same experience as your, your putative victim here mean, doesn't mean that they're going to sympathize or, or do anything about it. Where did you live when you worked in the DA squad? Were you uh, living in Manhattan? I lived on the Upper West Side for a while. I lived... In- oh, this is a nice life you got for yourself. <laughs> no, really. I You're a young up- guy. You're living on the Upper West Side. You work in the district attorney's office. You jump on the train. You go downtown. You handle your cases, your business. You're six foot six. You go to Pete's for beers after playing basketball. You're in the DA basketball league. <laughs> You know? What was the name of the bar on, uh, man, 79th Street, right off of Broadway, um, Irish, Irish Oh, place. yeah, the Dublin Pub. Dublin House. Yeah, Dublin House. Dublin House. Yeah, that yeah. was a great spot. That's where spot. the kid got uh-huh. killed in front of him. He got kicked in the yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, so, yeah it was Did you a, have a little fun back then? I, minor fun. <laughs> minor fun. Was alcohol always involved in your fun? Most of my fun stories involve alcohol. <laughs> yeah, the ones I can remember. <laughs> yes. But I see, actually, I see a, a TV series here. There's a, there's a good story about the Dublin house. Um, I, I got, I was in the office about three years, and there was an assault case where the victim was, a, was an FOB. A fuck yeah, Reggie's brother? <laughs> no, the victim was an FOB, um, or the son of an FOB. An FOB was a friend of Bob. I mean, a friend of Bob Morgenthau. Yeah. So oh. he's sitting on a bus and a guy comes, a you know, little guy comes on a bus and he sits down and the victim is sitting next to an open window and the defendant, the soon to be defendant, um, was yelling at the victim to close the window. It was cold and the victim doesn't close the window. He gets up and goes, goes over and saps him. In the nose and breaks his nose. So because they because it was an FOB, they wanted somebody with experience who'd been there a while. I think it probably been there four years. And I get the case, and we go to trial. And in the middle of trial, uh, the defendant tries to assault his lawyer. Oh, and the jurors are looking, going, "Wow, this is an assault case." And the guy just tried to sucker punch his lawyer. And the, the court officers are now wrestling on the floor with Richard Friedlander, who has a broken leg. And the judge looks at me and he goes, he goes, Mr. Bibb, would you show the jury out? So I show the jury out while they're wrestling. And Richard Friedlander was about 5'5", five, five, 130 pounds. Mm-hmm. There's four court officers on top of him having trouble getting him cuffed. They cuff him up. This guy had a bad temper, huh? Oh, bad temper. <laughs> they cuff him up. Um, I expect him to go to jail that night. We continue with the trial. Uh, he calms down. He discharges his Didn't attorney. Did you say he broke his leg? He had, he, no, not then. He had a broken leg. Oh, he had, okay. His leg was in a cast. Oh, all right. And so the judge lets him continue as his own lawyer and has the victim on the stand for, this should have been a one-day trial, two-day trial. Pick a jury, put the evidence on, sum up the next day. Turned into a week-long nightmare oh, where the defendant is cross-examining all the witnesses. I had, there were two eyewitnesses on the bus. The defendant walked off the bus into the arms of an off-duty transit cop. Um, this should have been a couple, you know, two days, five, six days in. And the last day was supposed to go to the jury. The defendant's supposed to sum up. I'm supposed to sum up. The defendant calls and says, I'm not coming. You know, and... Judge looks at me and goes, the judge, brand new judge, too. Brand, <laughs> brand spanking new judge, looks at me and goes, what do I do? Oh, my God. And I go, well, um, you gave him the warnings that said if he didn't show up, we're going to go forward without him, so we should go forward. Now, the lawyer he tried to assault is now his standby legal counsel. He refuses to sum up, so I sum up. <laughs> the jury sends a note out, says, if we think he's crazy, what do we do? So the judge then instructs the jury, that's, an, that's a defense he's got to raise, and he didn't. So they swiftly convict him. 
And it's about nine months later, after a softball game, I'm with my girlfriend in the Dublin house. <laughs> and sitting there, there's probably half a dozen of us from the softball team, my girlfriend, and the other five, four or five guys from the softball team slowly filter out. And then we're sitting at a, at, at a table, you know, there's little booths along the right-hand side of the wall, and we're sitting at one of those booths. And I look over, and there's Richard Freelander oh, sitting. Mm-hmm. Did he tell you he closed the window? <laughs> Buy your drink? <laughs> so I looked at my girlfriend, I said, I can't believe that. I can't believe this. She goes, what? What's the story? Uh-huh. I go, I, I have to make a 911. I got to call 911. So, uh, you know, this is 1986. You know, I walk to the back of the bar. There's a, you know, two phone booths. Step in the phone booth. I get the usually in, exceedingly intelligent operator, 911 operator on with me. And I try to explain to her what's happening. And she's like, where are you? Oh, What's, you know, it's the, it's the right. really brilliant people that have on 911. And I finally get it. To, I finally explained to her that there's a guy on a warrant mm-hmm. that the, the police are going to want to come and that they should. So I tell my girlfriend, I just wait right there. And I go out and I wait for the arrival of the police and a sergeant and his driver show up. And it turns out I know the driver. I'd had half a dozen beers by that point, mm-hmm. at least. And I go and explain to the sergeant what's going on. And he's like, are you drunk? Oh, good. And I look at him. I said, yeah. I said, <laughs> but I can, I can still see. Mm-hmm. And I said, the guy in the bar is a guy that I tried for an assault who was convicted after trial. And he's out on a warrant. How do you know? Well, if he wasn't out on the warrant, I would have found out about it when they returned him to court. So the sergeant says, and I said, oh, by the way, you should bring a couple of extra guys with you. So the sergeant goes, well, all right, you know, really officious guy. He says, you know, okay, we'll, we will take your word for it. We'll go in. So they go into the bar, and I said, just be prepared. Uh, the bartender was a guy by the name of Chris. I can't believe I remember this detail, <laughs> these details. The bartender I had known from drinking there, I by the name of Chris. I walk in, followed by a sergeant and three cops. And he's like, what's going on? I just, you know, put my fingers across my lips, don't say anything. By this time, it's three deep at the bar. And I woke up behind Richard Freelander, and I, I go like this. And I put my, point my finger at him. And the sergeant walks up to him and says, are you Richard Freelander? He said, yes, I am. And the sergeant says, well, you're under arrest. Well, guess what happened next? He throws a punch at the sergeant. <laughs> Four cops and Richard Freelander are rolling around on the floor. This guy loves to fight, as, man. As, as people are fleeing. You know, going out the front door and running toward the back. Uh And I just, I take two steps back and I look and I go, I told you so. Uh And they finally, they finally get him cuffed up and they they pick him up and they take him outside. And the sergeant comes over to me and goes, well, you got to come to the precinct. I said, I got no problem with that. I look at my girlfriend. I said, you know, let's get get in the back of a radio car. I mean, even even though the precinct was like four blocks away. Uh, It's 82nd Street. (laughs) So we get in the back of a radio car and we go to the precinct and... Um, I had had I had a, had a full beard when I was trying him, and I was pretty much clean shaven when this was happening. So I'm sitting, in, you know, sitting outside the cells on the first floor of the, of the 2-0, and Freelander is going nuts in the cell, screaming, yelling, screaming, yelling. And finally, he looks over at me and he goes, "Do I know you?" I go, "Yes, you do, Richard." He goes, who are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm the prosecutor who tried you for that, for that assault case. He goes, I beat that case. I said, no, you ran away from that case. So I'm, not, I'm not having a conversation <laughs> with my defendant. <laughs> uh-huh. So I write this long, and of course, they do a warrant check, and it comes back. He's got, he's got the warrant. Uh-huh. And uh, I write this long note for the cop to, to the guy's going to go right to court and at night arraignments. And uh, I write this long note for the cop to give the assistant DA. And the assistant DA reads the note to the judge. Guy gets remanded. The next day we're in court and he's looking at me going, now I recognize you. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. As, the, as the judge is like, well, we got to get his lawyer here. And I said, well, 
Remember, he was his own lawyer, Judge. You yeah. can, you know, you can do whatever, do whatever you want with him. Yeah, but <laughs> he was... said that he di- he canceled the case, that he dismissed <laughs> he, the case. He beat the case. If he's oh, the yeah. lawyer, can he do that? Yeah. Just say, just, I, I, I won. I, I won. <laughs> I think that's what he probably he told himself. He declared just... that he won that case. <laughs> but I, remember he, I remember, you know, the, the, the court officer coming out after he had called and said he wasn't coming. And uh, I'm like, you know, okay, that's a first. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm sitting in the bar looking at Friedlander going, I, can you believe this? I got to remember to do that. You know? <laughs> and, you know, and they're, they're comp- He should have canceled the warrant on himself. Oh. Yeah, he could have. You're right. <laughs> he should have did that. Over the phone. <laughs> yeah, my clients. Yeah, this is attorney Friedlander. I'd like to I'm representing Friedlander. <laughs> the case of Friedlander. Oh, that's that a was, great story, that man. That was insane. Oh, my God. Dan, you know, one true, of the- True every word. <laughs> One of the cases, and I don't know if you were the lead attorney in this case or not, but the case of the doctor who killed his wife and then allegedly uh, threw her in his plane, flew over the Atlantic and dumped her in the ocean. Was that your case? It was. I tried the case. We, Steve Sirocco and I, in 1996, started the cold case unit in the Manhattan DA's office. and We were taken off a homicide call. We were allowed to take cases as we wanted them. Um, and... We were basically allowed to take cases by application. In other words, detectives would come to us and ask us, I have this, I have this old case. You guys want to work on it? And if, if we knew and liked the guy, the answer was always yes. If we told the detective bringing the case to us was, you know, a dick, <laughs> the answer might be no. How do they become a dick? How does a detective become a dick? Um, think they're legally smarter than you are? That happens a lot. Um, Sometimes it has. There were there were a few that if I mentioned now, yeah, I'd probably know their names. You yeah. would no, you absolutely would know their names. Well, you um, know, you know, who I want to bring up, and he, he, I, I love the guy, but I had more fights with him in my career as a sergeant than any other human being on this earth is Joe the Lip Latrenta. Joe Latrenta. Joe Latrenta. I love the guy, but he, if I st- said something was red, he said it was blue. If it was green, he said it was white. You know, he was the most. Mm-hmm. But he was a great detective. But he, he just had that personality that you know. Well, get back to let's talk about the doctor a bit, and then I'll tell you. I'll tell you. <laughs> tell a, Joe the Lip I'll tell story. You, I'll tell you the Lip story. Um, so <laughs> we had just done. Uh, we had just done a 27-year-old double homicide from Midtown North. Cold case. Cold case. It was 1970 double homicide. And the Midtown North squad had closed it on an EC that the guy was dead, even though they never had a body. But they figured he was such a bad guy, he couldn't spend 27 years of his life without getting arrested. Because up to the time of the double homicide, he probably spent 50% of his life in state prison. That makes sense. But he was alive. And oh, he, he was. was. For 27 years, 26 what? of the 27 years, he was living in uh, Benicia, California, under an assumed name. Was he getting in trouble under that name? No. Never took a collar again. Wow. So we did that case, and there was a, Andy Roseswag was the chief investigator. He was re- retired NYPD, went to the DA's office as an investigator, ended up becoming chief. He brought us that case. We did that case. Um, we end up, he ends up getting collared back in New York with a gun. <laughs> he said he was, he said he came back to New York to kill cops. But the Benicia guy? Yeah. So he pleads and Andy Roseswag came to us with the doctor case. And we said, sure, we'll take a look at it. Uh, it took two years before that was. What happened September with the doctor 90, case? It was September 97 when Andy brought it to us, and he was arrested in September of 99 for the murder of but his But what, wasn't the family pushing, though, to that they felt he By killed that, her? Well, yes. Originally, the family, the family absolutely believed that he had killed her, um, and they pushed that narrative. There were two really good um, missing persons guys assigned to it— um, one of whom I'm still in touch with, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Um, there was one guy from the 19th, one guy from Missing Persons that were assigned to the case, both really good guys, both really good detectives. And it was probably, that was 85 when his wife disappeared. And it, they pretty much ran out of steam by 1990. 
there was pretty much nothing left to do. Um, the the defendant, Robert Birnbaum, had moved to Las Vegas and then to Minot, North Dakota. Now he was a plastic surgeon. He correct? was. A pl- he was yeah. a plastic surgeon. So he made some coin. This guy. Would he kill his wife? Yeah. Yeah. And we ended up trying that case in September and October of 2000. Seven-week trial. The jury was out for a total of probably about six or seven hours overnight and convicted them probably out about four hours one night and then three hours the next morning and convicted them of murder, too. He got 20 to life, and he's in his 18th year. Was that the first At case in Attica. New York State history, uh, murder case conviction without a body? Yeah, we did. We researched that, and the answer to that is no. Oh, it wasn't? Okay. Because at the time we were, we were prosecuting the doctor, there were three other no-body homicides pending well, that were tried within... There had never been a no-body homicide tried in Manhattan. We, we didn't check any of the other boroughs. Um, but there had never been a no-body homicide as far back as records were kept in Manhattan. And the, the Sante Kimes case was pending at the time. Right. The grifter, uh, mother and father. Also from the I 19th mean, precinct. Mother and, mother and son. Yeah. Mother and son team. Yeah, yeah, I remember them. That was a good case. What was uh, the lady's name? They killed uh, Rubenstein or something. Uh, Sil- Silverstein. 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 Yeah. Silverstein. There was... Another, there were two other cases that got absolutely no press because they weren't, you know, they weren't a doctor killing his wife, right. an Upper East Side doctor killing his wife, an Upper East Side, you know, a grifter couple killing an Upper East Side socialite. They were, you know, another guy of, of a guy who killed and strangled his wife who was overcome with guilt and went in and confessed to having killed her. A good friend of mine, Harvey Rosen, tried that case. There was another no-body homicide that an assistant DA by the name of Gene Hurley, who, by the way, is still, started in 83, a year after I did, and is still at the DA's the office. The master of preparation, they used to call him, right? <laughs> there, was, there, was, there was no stone left unturned right, right. with Gene Hurley. He was unbelievable. Um, Small guy. Someone told me, Andy um, Curtin told me one time, when he interviewed for the DA's office, they said, on a scale of 1 to 10... What would you say your sense of humor is? And he looks at him and he says, about a three. <laughs> I thought that was great. I know. I started with Andy. I was, I was, I interviewed that day with Andy. I, the day before we were both at the, uh, we had interviewed the, together at the Brooklyn DA's office. And then the day that we both interviewed at Manhattan DA's office. Yeah. I was just going to ask I would you agree, I would agree that with Andy's assessment of his, uh, of, of his, no, but that's his what, funny that's what quotient. Really said. Oh, he yeah, said well, his, Gene, yeah, his well, was Gene. about a three. Oh, I'd agree with Andy. Might yeah. probably a three too. But Gene, Gino. Good friend of mine, absolutely a three, maybe less. <laughs> maybe less. <laughs> I was going to ask you that because obviously Manhattan uh, DA squads is a prestigious place to go, but did you try and get into other DA squads? I did. Um, I interviewed in Brooklyn, and I was offered a job on a Wednesday. And Gold was the sitting DA, but Holtzman was doing all the interviews because she was taking over in January of 83. I got an offer from her on a Wednesday, and I said, well, can I, you know, or I think it was Tuesday, and I said, well, can I let you know on Friday? And on Thursday, I had four separate interviews in the, D- in the Manhattan DA's office, and I told them I have other, I have other job offers. And I got to make a decision. And I end up, I was there all day. I end up seeing the boss late that afternoon, and he said, well, I just want to, I want to call Judge Meaner and Judge Stern, Herb Stern, who was a former Manhattan assistant DA under Hogan, who's now a federal judge out in Newark. Because I just want to call them and, and ask about you. And I said, okay. He goes, call tomorrow about noon. So I'm in some lawyer's office doing some work. And I call at noon and I get, to, I get Morgenthau on the phone. He goes, oh, well, uh, Dan, uh, <laughs> I'd like to make you an offer. I said, well, I'd like to accept. So, yeah, and, and I interviewed in the Bronx DA's office. So you became an FOB. <laughs> From the bar. <laughs> that, that day, during that phone call, I became an FOB. How did, uh, how did that guy, uh, Lincoln Letter, what was his name? How did he even, how, how was he a friend of Bob's? 
I don't the the defendant. No, no the, 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 the complainant. Oh, the complainant. The complainant. Oh, oh that's um, why you the, had to take I it seriously. That's why the me. complainant's father was a friend of Morgenthau. Mm -hmm. That and that was not the only FOB case that I had. I had another crazy case where a guy was calling nine one one and sending cops gallop and fire gallivanting over to his old girlfriend's apartment. So I'm about five or six years in the office when I get that and. That girl's father was a friend mm -hmm. of the <laughs> So there, the FOB cases that were, you know, not homicides or, you know, they got assigned to experienced people. Uh -huh. Of course. They you know, they, they, you know, Bob Morgenthau wanted somebody on the case that knew what they were doing because they were FOBs. They were FOBs. All right, we're going to hear some more stories, uh, more, more great, great stories on the second half. Um, you ready? We're going to take a break. This is what we do here. We refresh our cups. You didn't have any tea, though. He doesn't drink tea or coffee. I learned that. What is this? It's the water. Was that vodka? I'm, I'm, I'm un American. <laughs> I, it's I, the Manhattan DA squad vodka right here. <laughs> <laughs> He's an FOB. Don't, don't laugh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back for this part two of uh, Police Off the Cuff with Dan Bibb. <laughs> Thank you. 